There's always a bull market somewhere, but some are harder to find than others. Kramer is heeding the call. Go west, young man. Among the rubble of the tech sector torn asunder, Mad Money takes you to the heart of Silicon Valley to hammer out a San Francisco strategy. And we start right now. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to a special West Coast edition of Mad Money. I'll be able to make friends. Just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. When you take a good hard look at this market and really probe into its guts, there's one thing coursing through the body, and that's disappointment. It has an inevitability to it. You know it. I know it. The inevitability of disappointment is true even on a not terrible day like this one. Dow advanced 16 points, S&P inched up 0.31%, NASDAQ gained 0.40%, perhaps because it was much higher earlier in the day. Now, that's that pattern, that sickening pattern. Every year, we like to come out to San Francisco to rediscover what makes this economy work. But this time, there's a vicious sense of disappointment looming almost everywhere. The first disappointment is the stocks themselves. When they start out strong, there's a pretty good chance they'll give up the ghost by midday. If you don't follow the market that closely, you may not realize that the leaders this morning were none other than the semiconductors. There were buyers all over the place as early as 5 a.m., especially for AMD and NVIDIA, a pair of chip makers that used to be much higher, although they rebounded hard off their lows lately. After Friday's pacing, it seemed a pretty good entry point for the group. So AMD stock opens up a couple of bucks and it's anointed the leader because that's a big analyst meeting on Thursday. Just like solving a crime, you have motive. The analyst meeting meets the money on the sidelines. Opportunity. It's only a couple of bucks. Let's go. Next thing you know, the prince becomes the pauper. AMD plummets and you're down three from the highs. It's almost like you're playing baseball and you're up comfortably and then suddenly you let up four runs and you want to know who did it to you. Every one of these declines feels like a personal affront. It's impossible not to take this market personally. Second disappointment. Again, not the company, but the stock, Apple. You know they're holding a big worldwide developers conference filled with terrific ideas like buy now, pay later, which for Apple is revolutionary. They have virtually no defaults on Apple Pay, and I bet they'll have the fewest on uh, Apple Pay later. It's a real challenge the entire buy now, pay later industry. Then they redo their sports app, and it's incredible. So it's a challenge to all the current sports apps. To me, these changes are seismic. But to the raging bears, no, no, just a yawn. Sell, 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 sell. A non-needle mover, a disappointment. How is this possible? Anyone who really follows Apple knows this pay later thing is gigantic. But the bears tell us it's incremental, not revolutionary. The company gets zero benefit of the doubt, and the buyers are swamped by the sellers. It's like there's a highway patrol officer saying, nothing to see here, keep moving, cutting the rubber, rubbernecking buyers at the carotid artery. The Apple analysts have chosen not to downgrade or cut numbers, although I'm thinking that's really just out of deference. They just want to spoil the worldwide developer party. But once this conference is over, I'm, I got to believe it's going to be let the downgrades begin. It's a truly vicious market designed to fake out as many people as possible, including anyone who bought Apple at the high because of these changes. 
Yes, I think they do move the needle collectively, but individually, I get it. They bring out sellers before a late-day move that staunches the losses, brings the stock back up slightly, but not again to where the buyers were at the beginning of the session. It teases you. Third source of disappointment, Elon Musk. I mean, last week he knocked down the entire market when he said he had to lay off people at Tesla, 10% of their salary workforce, because he has a super bad feeling about the economy. Super bad. Coming on top of Jamie Hurricane Diamond's ugly comments about the economic weather earlier this week, you got a pair of negative bookends that made Wall Street incredibly nervous. If the man behind the biggest automobile innovation since the Model T thinks that it's time to do some big layoffs at Tesla, what's going to happen to everyone else? And then he comes out on Monday and says he's wrong. And he might even have to do some hiring, making Friday sellers feel like idiots. I think Musk is one of the best people, business people of our time. But I wish he'd run his public statements by a lawyer, or better yet, a phalanx of lawyers. When a CEO acknowledges that he's laying people off, that's called material information. So if they turn around and say the opposite a few days later, you got a real disclosure problem. Wait, but that's not all. There's more. Were you buying Twitter because you thought that Elon Musk was buying Twitter? I mean, think again. He says there's a problem with bogus accounts. So now he's not acquiring the darn thing, even as he agreed to do so after he had actually checked off on the problem earlier. I can't blame him for wanting to back out. I wouldn't want to buy Twitter at the price he agreed upon either. But it is a gut punch for anyone who bet the deal would happen. So Musk says he's laying people off, then he isn't. He tells us he's not buying Twitter for something he previously told Twitter he was fine with, at least implicitly. Now, why are Twitter's pushing for specific performance, a legal term meaning he has to go through with this bid? Look, I love Elon Musk, but I have Elon ennui. He's become someone who's too mercurial, even for my brain. Then there's some disappointments that lurk and lurk like a subtext underneath everything, like oil. You know we need oil prices to go lower if this market's going to have a sustained advance. So it seems like it's time for the oil stocks to go down. How many days can they go up already? How many weeks can they go up? The sellers, they come in hard. But then buyers come right back later in the day as if nothing happened. Once again, a vicious fake out. My travel trust is incredibly overweighted in oil, precisely because it's been by far the best performer in this terrible market. But I'm like a bull in Jellystone National Park. Prices are going higher at the pump, and nobody but the president can do anything about it. And even he can't can't do all that much. Biden would rather speak to the Saudis about boosting production than go to the Permian Basin in Texas. We're the biggest oil producer. Either way, the lesson is simple. Just get along some oil stocks. Finally, there's a sense of future disappointment to come that I want to give you a little heads up about. The People's Republic of China has decided to clear Didi, the Chinese Uber, in the government's cybersecurity probe. Once again, we have a gigantic move back into Chinese stocks by Americans, as if the Communist Party's last crackdown on these companies was simply one more buying opportunity. How is it possible that this can happen again and again? Who are these money managers who think that Didi's now in the clear and you can go back to all your favorite Chinese names? Their government has proven it will turn on these companies at the drop of a hat. This is the definition of insanity. I was okay with the trade when I saw it coming last week. But if you come in now after this move, it's no longer a trade. It's an investment and it's a dangerous one. Bottom line, I want to be kind to this market and tell you it's the same old buy the dips game plan. But in reality, the only dip that can be bought right now, at least, is the dip in oil. Everything else is, as they now say in a damning way, transactional and nothing more. Let's take some calls. Let's go to Jeff in Colorado. Jeff. Hey, Jim. Booyah. Happy Monday. Yes, same. Hey, I'm calling about Shopify. Uh, I know you've had great things to say about them. 
you've even had their president on your show a few times. And uh, heck, you even mentioned your wife uses their platform. Um, oh, yeah. I, I know you like them. But we're down, what, 80% from pandemic level highs. We're trading essentially back at late 2019 levels. And with the current forward PE ratio of like close to 300, I'm thinking it's really expensive. It is expensive. You read it right. You read it right. Look, in another market, you know, I, look, I think that these guys are fantastic. And yes, we use their product, but here's the problem. We are not buying on this show. We are not buying expensive stocks. We're buying the stocks of companies that make things and do stuff that return some capital and are valued at a reasonable level. And 424 times earnings is not a reasonable level. Let's go to Jimmy in Kentucky. Jimmy! Hey, Jim. Thanks for all you do for the little man. I was going to ask you a question today. Sure. Um, Jim, with all the new autos and EVs hitting the markets and fuel sky high, I'm in at 16 with Ford. Do you see, when do you see better days? I think better days, right. I'll tell you, we sold some Ford for the Chapel Trust in the 20s. I am anxious to buy that Ford stock back. Why? They've got the product line that everybody wants. That still matters. These are not just commodities. Ford's got a great product line. The F-150 Lightning is terrific. The Maverick, only three days in stock. That's all they can keep it in stock. The Mach-E, they've got so many things, both internal combustion, but their E-lineup is just killing it. So I say Ford is right here with a 3% yield. And it sells at seven times earnings. That's what I'm talking about. I like that. Hey, let's go to Matt in Wisconsin. Matt. Yeah, booyah, Jim. Booyah. Greetings from Wisconsin. Thank you. I got quick questions for you. Uh, I was hoping you'd give me some advice on an investment I made last year. Sure. The investment was with uh, Coinbase, ticker coin. I bought it for $300 a share. Now it's hovering around $70. Do I sell it or do I ride the storm out? And what does the future hold for Coinbase? Okay, now, uh, on Mad Money, we don't care where stock came from. We only care where it's going to. I happen to think that Coinbase is a company that I don't want to affiliate myself with. It's not expensive. But as far as I'm concerned, that market has turned very, very nasty. I've not liked these guys for some time, and I'm not going to change my tune now. All right. The only dip that I think can actually be bought during the day is the dip in oil. On Mad Money tonight's coming to CNBC's one market in San Francisco is now the time for ServiceNow, extremely profitable. Tech stocks, money, a comeback. Maybe it's right. I'm sitting down with the CEO to find out what's ahead for the company. Is the comeback for real? Then Twilio helps power the communication between you and many of your favorite apps. But stocks down 60% year to date. Our investors speak a different language. I've got the CEO. Plus, is it time to strike on CrowdStrike? I'm sitting down with the CEO after today's upgrade to find out what's next for the company. Three that you might want to buy. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. This is the most depressing trip to San Francisco since the show went on the air because the whole tech edifice has become a house of pain. 
But some of these beaten down cloud stocks are a lot more legitimate than others. Unlike the money losers, the ones with real earnings actually get cheaper as they go lower. Take ServiceNow, cloud-based software company that helps businesses automate all sorts of information technology processes and back-office jobs. This stock has come down from 707 at its peak last November to below 500 today, yet their business is terrific. Back in April, ServiceNow reported a solid quarter, and then two weeks ago, management reiterated their bullish outlook at a terrific analyst day, where they also raised their long-term subscription revenue targets. While the quarter didn't matter, the stock's rebounded hard since the analyst meeting. It's up almost 90 bucks in a couple of weeks. So could this be the start of a larger comeback, or do we need to remain cautious given the state of the market and so many of these gloomy people come on? Let's check in with Bill McDermott, the straight-shooting president and CEO of ServiceNow. Get a better sense of where his company's headed. Mr. McDermott, welcome back to Mad Money. Great to be with you, Jim. Thank right, you. Bill, do it for me. Bill, yeah. your business is on fire. That's the only term I can use for it. Why? We're focused on customers. And what the customer needs is information technology to transform their businesses. You got to keep your people happy. We're in the great resignation, they say. So you're going to have to recruit them, hire them, onboard them, train them, make them super happy and productive. You got to take great care of your customers. Give them a great service. And there's going to be 750 million new applications built in enterprises in the next three years. You're going to build it on the ServiceNow platform. We're ready to go, Jim. All right. So people say you have no idea what Jay Powell and the Fed can do. They can wreck the economy. It could be as bad as the 70s. Uh, Skipping over the 2008. I mean, tell me, are we at 2008 (laughs) levels in a few more months? This is not even close to 2008. In 2008, I was with a company where we lost a billion euros in pipeline in a day. That was a crisis. This is not a crisis. If anything, this is a crisis of opportunity. The digital transformation market is 11 trillion in the next three years, okay? If you're going to fight inflation, you're going to keep your employees inspired, no matter where they work from, by the way. You're going to connect to your customers direct to consumer or in any channel they want. You're going to have to do it with digital technology. One CEO said it best, Jim. He said, if I don't invest in the short term, I'll fall back in the midterm and I won't be around in the long term. That's why smart companies are going to pour it on when it comes to digital transformation, because you have to do more with less. You have to augment these supply chains. You have to keep your people and your customers happy. And digital is the only way out. Well, I will tell you, in your analyst day meeting, which was sensational, you actually talk about the number of S&P companies that went under and you studied them and they didn't do what you're talking about. If you look at the list of S&P companies, let's go back to 1989. It wasn't that long ago. There is not a single company on the 1989 top 30 list that's also on the top 30 list today as measured by market cap. So if you don't change and you don't transform your businesses and you don't hit the accelerator now when headlines are down, you might not be on any list in 30 years. Well, now you did tell me when you came in, I, you know, I said this company's going to be transformed. (laughs) We talked about seven figure deals. Yeah. Lots of seven-figure deals coming. That turned out to be unimportant versus what you're doing now. Yeah. I mean, Jim, it's incredible what's happening here to this company called ServiceNow. I think companies have really woken up to the idea that there'll be the hyperscaler clouds, those formations of infrastructure in the cloud. Absolutely. And the control tower for digital transformation will be ServiceNow. 
because we automate all the processes above the systems of record that have been put in over the last half century. So you're century. not ripping out stuff that, that people feel wedded to. That's the whole point. We get you there quickly. Speed is everything. Great innovation and great quality is terrific, but it has to also come with speed. So when you look at a ServiceNow project, in less than a few months, you have a positive ROI. And the exponential increase in the value of the business impact the software has is unbelievable. So that's what customers are looking for. They have no interest in experiments. Right. So if you're not big and profitable, they don't want to really experiment right now. And they have no interest in long, drawn-out projects because they got to hit the ground running with value today. Okay, so uh, people know that I believe in Bill McDermott. It's certainly been a good thing to do if you're a stock guy. Uh, but you have on the, a, a chart here in the investor presentation first quarter, our aspiration is to be the defining enterprise software company of the 21st century? Yes. I mean, it's kind of, that's a claim. It's, it, you're Jim. not, you're confident. Jim, I couldn't be more confident. When I came in here, I had a dream to make ServiceNow, along with my great colleagues, the defining enterprise software company of the 21st century. And actually, we're way ahead of schedule. As you know, you, we're performing at a rule of 60. So your viewers don't have any other enterprise software company in the world that's performing at a rule of 60. We just upped the guidance by another billion, and we're on a roll. But you know what it really comes down to? It comes down to customer-driven innovation and a great culture. Now, uh, there's a new, I've got, I can't, I've got a, I can't have you on without talking about the hitch. To me, this is, this is artificial intelligence that makes sense to me as someone who's hired a lot of people. Yes, you gotta give employees a great experience. You have to make sure you're profiling them in a way that gives them the knowledge, the skills, and the attributes they need to win. And that's what we do, but then, you have to be able to, as an executive in a company, match your best talent with your most important projects. And that's what Hitch does. So it was incredibly important to our employee experience business, which, as you know, is growing in leaps and bounds. So uh, inflation, not an issue. The uh, whatever J-PAL does is not going to be 2008. You're very bullish in the industry. How about the gloom that I feel all around us? Though? You know, a lot of times I think we can talk ourselves into anything. And in this case, there is a trillion dollars up for grabs on a per annum basis due to the supply chain dislocation in the world. But as I've worked with major automotive manufacturers as an example, we can augment a supply chain that used to be global to regional or even local in 30 days. We have one great entertainment company who literally just consolidated 12 different portals of complexity into one service with ServiceNow. An employee there 31 years said, this is the best experience that I've ever had. In other words, we have to deal with these things head on. I had one customer in Europe, Jim. They have 16,000 people, 8,000 in Russia, another 8,000 in Ukraine. They're paying the 8,000 in Russia to the end of the year. The ones in Ukraine are working out of bunkers. They're having trouble getting the market in um, China to work for them. So they have to reorient and recast the die on their structure. We'll do it in 30 days. 
Well, not 30 months, 30 why, days. Look, that's why I felt when the stock came down, an unbelievable opportunity. I reiterate that today. Uh, I love what you have to say, both Thank about you. your company and about America, by the way. Absolutely. And about America. Absolutely. Okay. That's Bill McDermott, president and CEO of ServiceNow, a stock I have liked ever since he came there. Man, buddy's back after the break. Coming up, when tech looks a wreck, don't twiddle your thumbs. Kramer checks in with Twilio next. Brutal time for the cloud software stocks, but some of these have been hit a lot harder than others, and I'm not sure it makes a lot of sense. Take Twilio. It's the communications platform that lets companies connect directly with their customers. Hey, listen, have you ever gotten a text from Airbnb like I did last week in that tech time? That's them at work. Twilio is a very compelling story, which is why the stock, uh, frankly, could rally from 100 at the end of 2019 all the way to 457 at its highs last year. But Twilio is exactly the kind of stock that's now going out of favor on the Wall Street fashion show because it's not yet profitable, which is, I think, why it's come down to around 100 as of today. And that's after a nice bounce off its lows last month. We saw this tug of war play out when Twilio reported a month ago. The results came in better than expected, including surprise break-even earnings number. But they also guided for a larger-than-anticipated loss in the current quarter. I'm not so sure if that wasn't just being under-promise over-deliver. But in response, the stock got obliterated, losing more than 20% of its value over the next five days. Like I said at the top of the show, this is a vicious market. But ever since the bottom in, in mid-May, the, the market feels less hostile to this kind of story. Is that enough? Let's take a closer look with Jeff Lawson, the founder, chairman, and CEO of Twilio, to your more about its outlook for the future. Mr. Lawson, welcome back to Mid Money. Thank you, Jim. Great to be here. Yeah, Jeff, i got to tell you, the market is unforgiving because basically you talked about profitability next year, and it's almost as if here we are in June that we can't wait. We can't wait. It doesn't seem to matter how well you're doing, but I want people to know the amount of business you're winning and how this is really Twilio's time. Well, look, we have, for the last 14 years of the company, we've really focused on growth as the means of capturing this amazing market opportunity ahead of us. I mean, as every company is undergoing digital transformation, building direct relationships with its customers, um, and now in the new privacy world, having to do that with all this first-party data, I mean, this is a tremendous tailwind. So we have focused, as we told investors in our IPO, we're going to focus on growth, we're going to focus on winning customers, as opposed to uh, bottom-line profitability. But we did uh, announce after our Q4 call, that uh, in 2023, we are going to focus on becoming a profitable company starting in the calendar year 2023 and beyond. Okay. And we think that's the right thing to do because we're now at a $3 billion uh, revenue run rate company. And at our scale, make money. Yeah, we think we can make money. All right. And I don't think it jeopardizes the long term. And I think that's the important thing, which is when we were a you know, $150 million company when we went public, you're like, hey, we really want to invest in that growth. But now we can do it, and we're laser-focused on becoming profitable. Okay, now you, you uh, kind of, because you want to get all that in, I, I think you left out something we've got to explore. This notion of third party, that was a lot of free riding. And you explain that very well in all of your uh, conference calls and all the all the research. But there's still 80 percent of the people rely on third party cookies. Aren't those people all going to end up going to your company? Well, here's the problem that exists, right? In the building of the Internet for the past 10 years, people threw cookies on their websites sure. and, and all, through all the magic of the Internet, right, were able to go buy ads on Google and Facebook and all stuff and just keep acquiring new customers. Well, Along comes all these privacy rules, and people learned about all the shady things that were happening behind the scenes on the Internet, and society collectively said, hold on, we do not like this. And so rules have come into place that say, look, you can't just throw cookies everywhere. You can't have all these data brokerages of all this information. Companies need to actually know their customer and then serve them. 
And so getting rid of all this third-party data, buying and selling of data, and outsourcing, actually knowing your customer to Google and to Facebook, and just churning through customers, I mean, that is not a good business no. model. No. And now the technology and the regulations are saying, look, you can't do it anymore. So every company out there needs to understand their customers. So pay attention. Mm -hmm. What are all the signals you're giving off? You go to the website. What do you browse? What do you click on? What do you scroll past? What do you not click on? And use that as signal to help them understand where you are in your journey and then serve you better. And if you think about the companies that do a great job of this, it's Amazon, it's Google, right? It's these companies that are great at managing first-party data and then personalizing those services. Well, Twilio and Segment, the leading CDP that we acquired a few years ago, let's companies do this for themselves, and that is the future of the Internet. Well, it seems like uh, since I first met you, messaging, talk messaging, but now you know they went, they went back and forth, and you, you are now in a position to give that, which is really the next step from when I've seen you last. Yeah, well, it's, to me, uh, a, a relationship between a right. company and its customer is a dialogue. And look, if you and I were chatting and I wasn't listening to anything you said and just kept blabbing the same thing, you're like, you'd turn that off pretty quickly, right? Right. But instead, companies actually listen to their customers. I mean, think about how many times you get an, a proactive notification from a company, right. like a text message that says, hey, your flight is departing, whatever. And if you reply to that message, how often do you actually get a company who's paying attention and listening? Yeah. Almost never. But here's, the, here's the, the really interesting part. How much companies spend to acquire you as their customer? They will spend right. so much right. money to acquire the as a customer. The cost of acquisition versus lifetime value is yes. so important. So think about the, this is the equation that runs the Internet. The cost for acquisition being less than the lifetime value right. created. If you spend more to acquire a customer than you make from them in the long run, it's bad business. <laughs> That's the right? loss. And what Twilio is doing on both sides of that equation is helping you spend less to acquire customers, so lower CAC, and greater lifetime value by making those customers better, happier, more loyal customers that you don't have to go reacquire again with retargeting and more ad buys and all this kind of stuff. Because when you serve your customer better, they become a better customer of you. So someone who uses Compass, the great real estate company, yep, might have Compass. an edge on uh, the Compass salespeople might have an edge versus others because they use you. Yeah, Compass is a great customer of ours. Uh, last quarter on our earnings call, we announced that they had adopted Twilio Flex, our contact center product, that allows a company to really build a great service experiences that integrate the entire, everything you know about Which the matters because it's a very yeah. scary thing to buy a big house and dine her $1,000. You need the help. Yeah, and you don't want to leave it to chance, no. right? So customer experience. But then you flip it, the other side of that, customer acquisition costs. And in a environment like this, where every company is focused on profits, right? Now is a period of time where understanding the ROI of your investments, looking at the bottom line. I mean, that's what every company, tech or otherwise, is focused on in an environment like this. We are helping those companies both bring down that customer acquisition cost because segment first party mm -hmm. data allows you to do better ad targeting, get more ROI out of those ads. But then once you acquire that customer, truly engage with them, two-way messaging uh, and, and better campaigns, better marketing that is all personalized to what that customer wants and increase that lifetime value. Well, I mean, it, it's, this is the equation that runs the Internet and, and Twilio is powering it. Well, I think with the number of people who are still in third party and they're not going to know what to do. They will have to come to Twilio. You know, I've used the product, and it's amazing. The one thing I would say is that if you all wait until 2023 when you'll be profitable, the stock will be double. I mean, you can't, you can't wait because everybody can just sit there and say, you know what, I'm going to wait till they're profitable. And, Jeff, i got to tell you, as, as someone who's done this for 40 years, when you wait for the company to have the breakout, 
you've already missed the train. And I think that you've convinced a lot of people uh, that you've got the formula now. You don't have to worry uh, about getting there because you got the $3 billion. And I think it's going to be the time is now. Well, thank you, Jim. We are laser focused on growing, like we told the street we're going to do, on profitability next year, but also on Dub Nation. Well, that... Of the things you're in control of, I'm going to put that one last. When I saw them yesterday, you, you may, somebody's in control of them, but it may not be. It may be heavenly because that's how good they are. That's Jeff Lawson, chairman and CEO of Twilio. Hey, Jeff, thank you for coming on. Congratulations on the big turn. Thank, thank you. you, Jim. Go Dubs. Coming up, as uncertainty reigns supreme, is it time to double down on security? Protect your portfolio with the latest info. CrowdStrike After Earnings is next. Cyber threats have become stronger and the danger more clandestine. Some investors may scour tech for relief. Is it time for the crowd to strike while the security sector is in high demand? All right, it's been a hideous environment for all things software. But at least one subgroup has held up better than most, and that's cybersecurity. The demand for this service never goes away, especially in a world where Russia can only hit back at the West through state-sponsored hackers. Of course, in late April and early May, the cybersecurity stocks got obliterated along with everything else. But they've already started rebounding. Look at Kramer Fave CrowdStrike, the cloud-native cybersecurity firm with a long track record of putting up great numbers. Last Thursday night, CrowdStrike once again beat the numbers, putting a big top and bottom line beat with sales up 61%. This is not a small company year over year. Even better, management gave terrific guidance for the current quarter and raised their full-year forecast by a significant margin. Yet apparently that wasn't enough, because after opening strong, the stock ultimately tumbled nearly 7% on Friday. Now, I thought that was an insane response to an excellent quarter, and I'm not alone, as the stock jumped more than 4% today, erasing a big chunk of Friday's decline. That said, I still think you're getting a fabulous quarter for free. So let's take a closer look with George Kurtz. He's the co-founder and CEO of CrowdStrike to learn more about the quarter and what comes next. Mr. Kurtz, welcome back to Mad Money. Great to be here, and more importantly, great to be here in person. Oh, isn't it? Isn't it yeah. great to see? Wow. Well, George, I'm telling you, you're playing offense. I love it. I love some of the things you're talking about. Threat, threat hunting, hunting while the shields are up. You're being on the offense. Almost everyone else is playing defense. How are you able to do that in an environment where the bad guys have so much power? Well, I think it comes back to the technology we built in the platform itself in Falcon. A uh, big part of our success has been the AI algorithms that we built, but more importantly, the seven trillion events that we take in on a weekly basis. We correlate that, we understand it, and we get ahead of the threats so that we can keep our customers safe. Okay, but at the same time, uh, obviously, it's never ending. And you talk about what the bad guys do when they're in, and it's no longer just ransomware, is it? It's not. And when we think about ransomware, that's uh, it's a bit passe. Obviously, it's still uh, uh, an important weapon for the cybercrime actors. But people have gotten smart to that. So they started backing up their data files. And what the ransomware actors have done is uh, it's called lock and leak. They encrypted and they leaked the data. So they basically give you a choice. Either you pay the money and get it unencrypted, or if you try to restore from backup, they'll actually just leak all of that private and sensitive information on the Internet. So it's a bit of a Hobson's choice, and unfortunately, most people end up paying it. And they pay it, what, in Ethereum? What's their currency of choice? Uh, Bitcoin, but, you know, they, they actually have a help desk. So if you don't know how to use any of the uh, crypto you know, wallets, uh, they'll help you with multi-language support. 
uh, and they're very friendly in uh, in trying to get this money paid. Well, uh, whatever it is, it's great advertisement for what you do. Now, you have uh, customers taking more than one product, and you also have an emerging product group. Now, that's different from when I saw you last, so I'll give you the floor to talk about that. Yeah, so we have our core endpoint technologies, which protect endpoints and workloads and gives us deep visibility in what's happening in a threat environment. But because the Falcon platform was built to be extensible, when we started the company, I had one module. We have 22 today. We talk about the attach rates now. We're up to seven uh, modules that we uh, go through on our earnings call with 19% attach rate. We had four. We're actually going to deprecate that stat because we had so many that attached to over 70%, which is really a healthy number for a platform. But in general, we focused on some emerging technologies, things like vulnerability management, things like log management, things like identity, which have been just blockbusters for us. And it shows you the breadth and the durability of the revenue streams that are outside of just core endpoint. Well, and I want to make it clear, uh, when you say blockbuster, this is not just sales. I mean, you've got a ramp in your, the, uh, the en- es- estimates yeah. indicate tremendous profitability. Yes. Yeah, and when you look at CrowdStrike, let's just start with the rule of 40. We're 93 on a free cash flow basis, growing at scale almost $2 billion in annual recurring revenue, over 60% uh, revenue growth. It's incredible. And when you look at the free cash flow, 32% free cash flow margin, $157.5 million last quarter. And that's what we're looking for. We need profitability. Now, one of the things that strikes me, you're different from a lot of the CEOs that I speak to. You talk about the problems with Microsoft, but you also yeah. now, Carbon Black gets, from VMware gets bought by Broadcom, and you're out there saying, look, great for us. Why doesn't anyone else ever talk about the competition? Why are you the only person who's ever come on this show and say, listen, we're going to beat Carbon Black now just like we beat Microsoft. Why aren't you more afraid? You're not a big company like Broadcom. Well, you will be one day, but Microsoft, why do you take them on? Why do you, why do you taunt them? Well, we're here to win, and we take all, all competitors seriously, but we are here to win. And uh, when something happens in the environment, we're going to call it out. You look at some of the, the big vulnerabilities that came out uh, specific to Microsoft. People have been exploiting the latest vulnerabilities for seven weeks before it's been fixed, and uh, their own technology defender was actually blinded to it. So we call that out. Uh, we talk about our successes, but uh, it's a competitive sport out there. And, um, you know, we're here to win and we're here to make sure that our customers are actually protected. Now, uh, you're talking about identity and we are close to Okta. Are you willing to say that yours better than Okta already? Well, we get this question all the time and uh, we actually complement and partner with Okta. So what's more important is that we focus on being able to enforce a zero trust architecture on the endpoints and workloads, which means when the bad guys get in, they can't move laterally. So if they get on one computer, they can't move about, which is a key part of how breaches happen. And in fact, how ransomware actually takes place. And the second element is giving visibility into these directory services like Azure AD and right. uh, on-prem AD. So it's totally complementary to what Okta and Ping and others are doing. Okay, well, you mentioned the, the trillions of, of inputs. Talk about the threat graph, because I think that that's very exciting. Well, we've got three graphs now. Uh, we started with the threat graph, which actually is our own graph technology, which understands literally trillions of uh, different data points and correlates those together and the relationships between those. 
We have the Intel graph, which uh, we go deep into intelligence, and there's a lot of indicators that are out there and what the bad guys are doing. And now, this week at RSA, which is why we're in San Francisco, uh, we launched the Acid Graph, which we're really excited about. I just ran into Bill McDermott on the way out. Of course, ServiceNow. And, and we integrate with ServiceNow. So the whole idea is that from a security perspective, you need visibility into your assets. How can you protect what you don't know about? So we give you the state of that asset. We give you a tremendous amount of information that we glean from ourselves, and now we actually import information from ServiceNow. This is, I think, going to be a real game changer for IT departments outside of just security to understand what they have, the state it's in, and how to keep it secure. Well, look, I, I think that the quarter was unbelievable. The reaction was very strange. But you convinced someone who was a negative uh, over at Morgan Stanley to buy today. I think that's the beginning. It makes no sense that your stock wasn't up huge on that 61%. Rule of 90. <laughs> no one's rule of 90. It's incredible, and uh, it's really a testament to what we built and the hardworking folks at CrowdStrike and certainly our customers. Excellent. Okay, that's George Kirsch, co-founder and CEO of CrowdStrike, with just a very big ramp ahead of him. Thank you so much, George. Thank you. Man, money's back in. Coming up next. Let's make money together. What do we got? Kramer's bringing the thunder and answering your burning questions in today's edition of The Lightning Round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Let's keep that down. The lightning round is over. Let's start with Bob in Massachusetts. Bob! Hey, Jim. Uh, thanks for all you do. Uh, wondering about uh, a stock in the energy field. Uh, paying about a 7% dividend. Large inside of buying. And the company's energy transfer. I thought I'd never say this, but ET, it's time to come home. It's worth owning. Because that whole group is going up and growing up big. I absolutely now say you can buy ET. Michael in Arizona. Michael! Michael's playing uh, playing it close to the best. Michael! Perhaps we should advance to Craig in Pennsylvania. Craig! Another elusive buy. Craig in Pennsylvania. Craig! Hey, how's it going, Craig? How are you doing today, my man? I am doing well. How about you? I am doing magnificent. I had a question about a particular company. Uh, it was a REIT. Uh, pretty much how like everything will go with this rising rate environment, uh, particularly oh. And the the REIT is oh a real oh oh letter O. Really, that's a terrific company. Oh, I would buy that one. No, I mean those guys really know how to do it bye, right, bye, bye. and that's going to do well in an inflationary environment. I need to go to John in Texas, John. Hi, Mr. Kramer. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I wanted to get your take on Zim Integrated Shippers. It's a stock ticker ZIM. It's a very worrisome situation for me because I feel like I'm late to the party. If I tell you it's okay because it looks like it's a very cheap stock and something's going to go wrong, I'm going to have to say I missed it and I'm moving on. Chris in New York. Chris. Chris. This is Josh in Hammond. Even better, Josh in Indiana. That's so much more who I wanted. Josh, I'm doing great. How about you? I'm good. I'm good, my man. All right, well, the kids are out of school. I think it's time to take a trip in a nice RV. What are your thoughts on Camping World? 
Oh, well, that's Marcus Lemonis, and he keeps being sold short by people, and that's a mistake. Now, I know that it's going to get hurt because gas leads going to go up, but I bank with Lemonis versus the shorts. That's the way I play it. Andrew in Michigan. Andrew. Hello, uh, Mr. Kramer, and thank you so much for taking my call, and you have a great staff. Uh, we sure I'm a, do. I'm, re- I'm recently retired, a political science professor in Michigan, retired into World War III. <laughs> Thank you for all of your advice recently. I, I'm just playing around a little bit. I'm a neophyte. I like rider trucks. I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. I know that Old Dominion has a larger network, but rider okay, seems so to have prop, a good listen, network. What do you think? That's more of a logistics company. It, it, it's more like logistics part of like GXO. So if you want trucking, I'm going to send you to Arc Best. Uh, to, uh, we had them on last week. I thought they were very, very compelling. Uh, now we got to go to, and thank you so much for the kind words. Let's go to Zimmy in Wisconsin. Zimmy! Booyah, Kramer. Booyah. Yeah, coming to you live from uh, Peckerland. You know, we're going to destroy your eagles. Yeah, well, like it always. could be, you know, we look good this year. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, so I'm actually uh, calling about a meme stock that is actually profitable, has a good fundamental mortgage business. As close to a 10% dividend yield now, and about close to 70% down from its highs. Is a UWMCA buy right now? Well, no. Uh, in the same way that Rocket's not a buy. I mean, these are just troubled companies when it comes to rates going up. So I'm going to have to say no to that one, even though it looks very cheap. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, is the San Francisco startup ethos beaten? Kramer searches for answers in the city by decay. Next. So I'm down at a cocktail at a local watering hole here in San Francisco. And Miguel asked me, what am I doing out here? There was a hint of incredulity. Like, why the heck is it worth it to come out here for these tech companies that now seem almost prosaic? Kind of like when I went to Pittsburgh in 1977 and the skies were still darkened by steel mills, even as the industry was gradually going down the drain. Something is definitely wrong in Silicon Valley. There's no excitement to it. It's just drudgery. The only gung-ho types seem to be in cybersecurity, the negative growth industry of our time. Why? Because the bad guys are relentless. When that's your best subsector, the one part of the industry that's still hiring, you have to be thinking companies are simply playing defense out here to protect themselves from the legion of hackers and digital con artists. What's happened out here? How could a growth company like Twitter succumb to a takeover bid from Elon Musk, who clearly regards it with tremendous contempt? Musk is torturing management and the board, even threatening to kick them to the curb, something that you could uh, easily imagine happening to a declining steelmaker 50 years ago. That is what I'm out here to find out. We're sick of hearing that everyone's going digital and transitioning to cloud or embracing data analytics. Of course they are. But every company involved in these businesses sees its price earnings multiple shrink by the day. Silicon Valley's going from the beating heart of the economy to the center of layoffs as engineers somehow become a dime a dozen, like the old Bethlehem Steel. 
the top executives make the big money, this time paid in shares, and they're often underwater, that they have no choice but to move on. Turnover, once the province of retailers, or maybe bankers, has finally hit this area hard. What a change from the old days. So is the magic gone? I am plumbing every depth here and hitting every silo to find out what went wrong and what can be done about it. Are there really only a few growth areas left in tech? Are semiconductors a lost cause? An industry maybe we've ceded to Taiwan, to Korea? Is the only technology that works in this market the kind that helps you get oil out of the ground at $30 a barrel? The aversion of formerly high-flying software-as-a-service stocks with lots of buzzwords, but no profits is undeniable. Even if they occasionally get a short-lived bump, say, from Kathy Wood, the best money manager of 2020, but definitely not of 2021 or 2022, and that's why I'm here. I want to find out what happened with the ride-sharing companies and the driverless cars and white-collar automation software and all the tools we needed to make remote work a reality. Maybe Intel's highly symbolic move to build semiconductor plants in Ohio, of all places, is actually not symbolic, but the wave of the future. I hope you heard tonight, I hope what you heard makes you believe that these companies we profiled are on to something, but I know you're circumspect because of all the money you've lost in the group. Maybe you're blind to the opportunity, but no one can blame you. So for the next week, we're trying to figure out if Silicon Valley still has a pulse, and not just a relentless downward pressure on valuation that's been with us since the Fed declared war on inflation last November. When the Fed stops tightening, I think there'll be big money to be made. But until then, I'm betting the unprofitable tech names will remain incredibly tough to own, even the profitable ones might be on sale. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. Now. 